Section 14 of Four and Twenty Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carmen Fulmer, West Virginia. Section 14 The Prince of Leaves by the Countess de Merat. Translated by James Planche. In one of those parts of the world commonly called Fairyland, on which poets alone have the right to bestow names, there formerly reigned a king so renowned for his rare qualities that he attracted the esteem and admiration of all the princes of his time. He had many years past lost his wife, the queen, who had never brought him a son, but he had ceased to desire one since the birth of a daughter of such marvelous beauty that from the moment she was born he lavished all his affection and tenderness upon her. She was named Ravissante, by a fairy, a near relative of the queen, who predicted that the wit and the charms of the young princess would surpass all that had ever before been known, or even could be expected from her present beauty. But she added to this agreeable prediction that the perfect felicity of the princess would depend entirely on her heart remaining faithful to its first love. In such a case, who can feel assured of a happy destiny? The king, who desired nothing so much as the happiness of Ravissante, heartily wished that it had been attached to any other condition. But we cannot command our own fates. He begged the fairy a thousand times to bestow on the young Ravissante the gift of constancy as he had seen her give to others the gift of intelligence and of beauty. But the fairy, who was sufficiently wise not to deceive him respecting the extent of her power, frankly informed the king that it did not extend to the qualities of the heart. She, however, promised to use her utmost endeavor to impress the young princess with the sentiments that would be likely to ensure her happiness. Upon the faith of this promise, the king confided Ravissante to her care from the time she attained her fifth year, preferring to deprive himself of the pleasure of seeing her rather than run any risk of marring her fortune. The fairy therefore carried off the little princess, who was very soon consoled for leaving the court of her father by the delight and novelty of passing through the air in a brilliant little car. On the fourth day after her departure, the flying car stopped in the middle of the sea, upon a rock of a prodigious size. It was one entire shining stone, the color of which was exactly that of the sky. The fairy remarked with pleasure that the young Ravissante was enchanted with this color, and she drew from it a happy omen for the future, as it was the color which signifies fidelity. Shortly after they landed on it, the fairy touched the rock with a golden wand which she held in her hand. The rock immediately opened, and Ravissante found herself with the fairy in the most beautiful palace in the world. The walls were of the same material as the rock, and the same color prevailed in all the paintings and furniture, but it was so ingeniously mixed with gold and precious stones that far from wearying the eye, it equally pleased in all. The young Ravissante dwelt in this agreeable palace with several beautiful maidens, 
whom the fairy had transported from various countries to attend on and amuse the princess, and she passed her infancy in the enjoyment of every pleasure suited to her age. When she attained her fourteenth year, the fairy again consulted the stars in order to learn precisely when the heart of Ravissante would be touched with a passion which pleases even more than it alarms, however formidable it may appear to some. And she read distinctly in the stars that the fatal time approached when the destiny of the young princess would be fulfilled. The fairy had a nephew who was indescribably dear to her. He was of the same age as Ravissante, born on the same day and at the same hour. She had found in consulting the stars also for him that they promised him the same fate as the princess, that is to say, perfect happiness, provided he possessed fidelity which nothing could vanquish. In order to make him both loving and faithful, she had only to let him behold Ravissante. No one could resist her eyes, and the fairy hoped that the attentions of the young prince would one day touch her heart. He was the son of a king, brother of the fairy. He was amiable, and the young princess not only had never had a lover, she had not even seen a man since she had lived on the rock. The fairy consequently flattered herself that the novelty of the pleasure of being tenderly beloved would perhaps inspire the princess with a feeling of love in return. She therefore transported the prince, who was named Ariston, to the same rock which served both as palace and prison for the beautiful Ravissante. He there found her amusing herself with the young maidens of her court by weaving garlands of flowers in a forest of blue hyacinths where they were then walking. For the fairy, in bestowing on the rock the power of producing plants and trees, had limited the color of them to that of the rock itself. She had already, some time since, apprised the princess that Prince Ariston would soon visit the island, and she added in speaking of the prince everything she thought likely to prejudice her in this favor. But she deceived herself this time, and on the arrival of Ariston, she observed nothing of that emotion or surprise which is the usual presage of a tender passion. As for the prince, his sentiments were in perfect accordance with the wishes of the fairy. He became passionately in love from the moment he first set eyes on Ravissante, and it was not possible to see her without adoring her, for never were grace and beauty so perfectly united as in the person of this amiable princess. She had the most exquisite complexion, and her dark brown hair added to its dazzling whiteness. Her mouth had infinite charms. Her teeth were more purely white than pearls. Her eyes, the most beautiful in the world, were deep blue. And they were so brilliant, and at the same time so touching with their expression, that it was hardly possible to sustain their glances without yielding the heart at once to the fatal power which love had bestowed on them. She was not very tall, but perfectly beautiful, and all her movements were peculiarly graceful. Everything she did and said pleased invariably, and often a smile or a single word sufficed to prove that the charms of her mind equaled those of her person. Such and a thousand times more amiable than I can paint her 
It had indeed been difficult for Ariston not to become distractedly in love. But the princess received his attentions with indifference and did not appear in the least touched by them. The fairy remarked it and felt a grief which was only surpassed by that of the prince. She had remarked in the stars that he who was destined to possess Ravissante would extend his power not only over the earth, but even over the sea. Therefore, her ambition made her wish that her nephew should touch the heart of the princess as much as he desired the same effect from his love. She thought, however, that if the prince were as learned as she was in the magic art, he might perhaps find some mode of rendering himself more attractive in the eyes of Ravissante. But the fairy, who had never loved, was ignorant that the art of pleasing is not always to be discovered, although sought for with the utmost ardor and eagerness. She taught the prince, therefore, in a short time, all those sciences which are known only to the fairies. He had no pleasure in learning them, nor had he any idea of employing them, but with regard to his passion for Ravissante. He began to make use of them by giving every day a new fate to the princess. She admired the wonders produced. She deigned even sometimes to praise what appeared the most gallant in these efforts of the prince to please her. But, after all, she received his devotion and his attentions as the just homage due to her beauty, and she considered them amply repaid by her condescending to receive them without anger. Ariston began to despair of the success of his passion, but he was too speedily obliged to confess that this very time, which he complained of so justly, and in which he felt so keenly the hopelessness of his love, had, notwithstanding, been the most happy period of his life. A year after his arrival on the island, he celebrated the return of that memorable day on which he had first beheld Ravissante. In the evening, he gave her a fete in the forest of the Hyacinths. Marvelous music was heard in every part of the forest without anyone being able to discover from whence the sounds proceeded. All that was sung by these invisible musicians tenderly expressed the love of Ariston for the princess. They concluded their admirable concert by these words, which were repeated several times. Norizon, nor relentless fate, my sufferings can terminate. Without one ray of hope to cheer, I feel my heart consuming here. How great his power, love never knew. Till from these eyes his arrows After the music, there appeared suddenly an elegant collation under a tent of silver gauze, elegantly looped up with ropes of pearls. It was open on the side towards the sea, which bounded the forest in that direction, and was illuminated by a great number of chandeliers formed of brilliance, which emitted an effulgence nearly equal to that of the sun. It was by this light 
that the nymphs of the court of Ravassant pointed out to her an inscription at the entrance of the pavilion, written in letters of gold upon a ruby of immense magnitude, supported by twelve little cupids, who flew away as soon as the princess had heard this inscription read, which consisted of these lines. Where'er throughout the world those lovely eyes may the devoted hearts of men enchain, for one is true as in the desert sighs, those lovely eyes may search sweet maid in vain. But through that world your glory to proclaim, and every mortal to your altar bring. Princess, we haste to bid the trump of fame, with praise of beauty so divine to ring. The fate continued, and Prince Ariston had at least the pleasure of engrossing the leisure of the princess, if he could not occupy her heart. But he was deprived even of this gratification by a surprising spectacle which appeared far out at sea, and attracted the curiosity and attention of Ravissant and of all the court. The object approached, and they distinguished that it was an arbor formed of interlaced myrtle and laurel branches, closed on all sides, and propelled with great rapidity by an infinite number of winged fish. This sight was the more novel to Ravissant, as she had never before seen anything of the color of this arbor, the fairy, having foreseen that it would cause some misfortune to her nephew, had absolutely banished it from her island. The princess watched for the approach of the strange object with an impatience which appeared to Ariston a bad omen for his love. She had not long to wait, for the winged fish brought the arbor in a few moments to the foot of the rock, and the attention of the young princess and all of the court was redoubled. The arbor opened, and out of it came a young man of marvelous beauty who appeared about sixteen or seventeen years of age. He was clothed in branches of myrtle, curiously interlaced, with a scarf composed of various colored roses. This handsome stranger experienced as much astonishment as he occasioned. The beauty of Ravissant did not leave him at liberty to amuse himself by observing the rest of the splendid scene, the brilliancy of which had attracted him from a distance. He approached the princess with a grace which she had never observed but in herself. I am so surprised, said he to her, at all I find on these shores that I have lost the power of expressing my astonishment. Is it possible, continued he, that such a goddess for a goddess you surely must be, has not temples throughout the universe? I am not a goddess, said Ravissant, coloring. I am an unfortunate princess, banished from the states of the king my father, to avoid I know not what misfortune, which they assure me has been predicted from the moment of my birth. You appear to me much more formidable, replied the handsome stranger, than those stars which may have some evil influence on your fate, and over what misfortune could not such perfect beauty triumph. I feel that it can vanquish everything, he added, sighing, since it has conquered in a moment a heart which I had always flattered myself should remain insensible. But, madam, continued he without giving her time to reply, I must, against my will, withdraw from this charming place 
where I see you only, and where I have lost my peace of mind, I will return soon, if Cupid prove favorable to me. After these words he re-entered the arbor, and in a few moments he was lost to sight. Prince Ariston was so astounded and distressed by this adventure that he had not at first the strength to speak. A rival had appeared in a manner as wonderful as unexpected. This rival had seemed to him only too charming, and he thought he had observed in the beautiful eyes of the princess, whilst the stranger addressed her, a languor which he had often desired to see, but which till then he had never detected. Agonized by a despair which he had dare not betray, he conducted Bravissant to the palace, where she passed part of the night, occupied by the recollection of her agreeable adventure, and made her nymphs relate each circumstance over and over again, as though she had not been herself present. As for Prince Ariston, he went to consult the fairy, who he hoped might possess some charm to allay the violent grief under which he labored. But she had no antidote for jealousy, and they do say none has ever been discovered to this day. The prince and the fairy, however, redoubled their enchantments to defend the entrance of the rock from this formidable stranger whom they took for a magician. They surrounded the island with frightful monsters who occupied a great space in the sea and who, excited by their own natural ferocity, and by the power of the spell, seemed to assure Ariston and the fairy that it would be an impossibility to take from them the beautiful princess whom they so jealously guarded. Ravissant seemed to feel more vividly the power of the charms of the handsome stranger by the grief she experienced at the obstacles opposed to his return to the island, and she resolved, at all events, to be revenged on Prince Ariston. She began to hate him and that alone was ample vengeance. Ariston was inconsolable at finding that he had provoked the hatred of Ravissant by a passion which it appeared to him should have produced just the contrary effect. The princess mourned in secret the forgetfulness of the stranger. It appeared to her that love should have ere this made him keep his promise to return, Sometimes, also, she ceased to desire it when she remembered the dangers with which Ariston and the fairy had surrounded the approach to the island. One day that she was occupied in these various reflections whilst walking alone on the seashore, for Ariston dared not as formerly follow her, and the princess refused to even attend the fates with which she was accustomed to entertain her, she arrived at the same spot which the adventure with the unknown visitor had rendered so remarkable, and was struck by the appearance of a tree of extraordinary beauty floating toward the rock. The color, which was the same as that of the myrtle arbor of the stranger, gave her a sensation of joy. The tree approached the rock, and the monsters attempted to defend the entrance, but a little breeze agitated the leaves of the tree, and having blown off a few, and driven them against the monsters, they yielded to these light and harmless weapons, and even ranged themselves with a show of respect in a circle around the tree, which approached the rock without further impediment, and opened, disclosing to view the stranger seated on a throne of verdure. He rose precipitately at the sight of Ravissant, 
and spoke to her with so much eloquence and so much love that after she had in a few words acquainted him with her history, she could not conceal from him that she was touched by his devotion and rejoiced at his return. But, said she, is it fair that you should know the sentiments with which you have inspired me before I am informed of the name even of him who has called them forth? I had no intention of concealing it from you, replied the charming unknown, but when near you, one can speak of nothing but you. However, as you wish to know, I obey you, and beg to acquaint you that I am called the Prince of Leaves. I am the son of Spring and of a sea nymph, a relation of Amphitrite, which is the cause of my power extending over the sea. My empire comprises all parts of the earth which recognize the influence of spring, but I chiefly inhabit a happy island where the gentle season which my father bestows reigns perpetually. There the air is always pure, the fields ever covered with flowers, the sun never scorches, but only approaches sufficiently near to illuminate it. Night is banished, and it is therefore called the Island of Day. It is inhabited by a people as amiable as the climate is agreeable. It is in this place that I offer you an empire, sweet and calm, and where my heart, above all things, will acknowledge your sovereignty. You must, however, beautiful princess, consent to be carried off from this rock, where you are retained in veritable bondage, notwithstanding the honors they pay you with a view to disguise the real state of the case. Ravissant could not, however, make up her mind to follow the Prince of Leaves into his empire, in spite of the fear which she had of the power of the fairy and the suggestions of her love. She hoped that her perseverance in rejecting the vows of Ariston would at length cause him to resolve to conquer his passion, and that the fairy would then restore her to her father, from whom the Prince of Leaves might demand her hand. "'But I should at least wish,' said she to him, to be able to send you word of what happens in this island, and I know not how that is possible, as everything I do is suspected and watched. I will leave with you here, said the prince, the subjects of a friend of mine, who is also a prince. They will constantly attend on you, and by them you can often send me intelligence. But remember, beautiful princess, with what impatience I shall wait for it. After these words, he approached the tree which had conveyed him, and having touched some of the leaves, two butterflies appeared, the one white and flame-color, the other yellow and light gray, the most beautiful in the world. As Ravissant gazed on them, the Prince of Leaves said, smiling, I see you are surprised at the appearance of the confidants I give you, but these butterflies are not merely what they appear to be. It is a mystery which they will explain if you will permit them to talk to you. As he spoke, Ravissant perceived in the distance some of her nymphs who came to seek her in her solitude, and she begged the Prince of Leaves to re-embark. He obeyed, notwithstanding the infinite regret he felt at quitting her, but he did not depart quickly enough to avoid observation. They informed Ariston and the fairy of his return to the island, and from that moment, in order to take away from the beautiful Ravissant the means, and even the hope of seeing him again, they erected a tower on the summit of the rock formed of the same stone. And in order to render it more entirely secure, as the guard of living monsters had proved insufficient, 
They caused the tower and rock to be invisible to all those who should come to seek her, not daring again to trust to ordinary enchantments. Ravisant was in despair at being immured in so cruel and impregnable a prison. Prince Ariston had not concealed from her that he had rendered it invisible. He had even attempted to make her accept his care for her safety as a proof of his tender devotion. But Ravisson felt her hatred and contempt for him increase daily, and he dared no longer enter her presence. The butterflies, however, had not quitted her, and she often regarded them with pleasure as having come from the Prince of Leaves. One day that she was still more sad than usual, and musing on a terrace at the top of the tower, the flame-colored butterfly flew onto one of the vases filled with flowers which ornamented the balustrade. Why, said he all of a sudden to the princess, do not send me to the Prince of Leaves, he will undoubtedly come to your relief. Ravissant was at first so astonished at hearing the butterfly speak, although her lover had prepared her for the novelty, that she was for some minutes unable to answer. However, the name of the Prince of Leaves assisting to dissipate her surprise, I was so astonished, said she at length, to hear a butterfly speak like ourselves, that I could not sooner reply to you. I can well believe that you could go to apprise the Prince of Leaves of my misfortune, but what can he do? Only distress himself uselessly. He cannot find me in a place which the cruelty of my enemies has taken care to render invisible. It is less so than you think, replied the yellow butterfly, flying round the princess in order to join in the conversation. A little while ago, I surveyed your prison. I flew and even swam round it. It disappears when one is on the water, but when one is elevated in the air, it ceases to be invisible. No doubt the fairy did not consider that the road so easy as to require the same defense as that by the sea. I was about to give you this hint, continued the butterfly, when my brother broke the silence which we have hitherto preserved. This agreeable piece of news restored hope to the princess. Is it possible, said she, that Ariston can have neglected any precaution which could gratify his cruelty and his love? No doubt his power, like that of the fairy which is unbounded over earth and sea, does not extend to the air. This was precisely the reason which had prevented the prince and the fairy from rendering the tower and the rock invisible from the sky. But, added Ravissant, after some minutes' reflection, can the prince of leaves have any power in the air? No, madame, replied the flame-colored butterfly. He can do nothing, and your prison will be invisible to him though he be a demigod as it would be to a mortal, but the prince would then be as miserable as myself, interrupted the sorrowful Ravissant, bursting into a flood of tears which added to her beauty, and which affected extremely the two butterflies. And I feel I shall be more distressed at his sorrows than at my own. What ought I then to do? continued she, sighing. Send me off at once, replied the flame-colored butterfly, briskly. I will go and apprise the Prince of Leaves of your misfortunes, and he will come to the rescue. Although his power does not extend to the air, he has a prince amongst his friends who can do anything in it, and of whom he can dispose as of himself. 
but my brother can inform you of all this during my absence. Adieu, beautiful princess, continued the butterfly, flying over the balustrade. Cease to weep and count on my diligence. I will fly as rapidly as your wishes. After these words, the butterfly was lost in the air, and the princess felt that charming and lively sensation of joy which the hope of soon beholding a beloved one inspires. She returned to her apartment, and the yellow butterfly followed her. She was extremely impatient to know from what prince her lover hoped for assistance. To end her doubts, she begged the yellow butterfly to tell her all that could contribute to augment or flatter her hopes. She placed him on a little basket of flowers, which she carried to a table near her, and the butterfly, who considered it an honor to please her, commenced his recital. Near the island of day, where the prince of leaves reigns, there is another, smaller but equally agreeable. The ground there is always covered with flowers, and they affirm that it is a boon granted to our country by Flora to immortalize the memory of the happy days when she came there to find Zephyr. For they contend that it was on our island that they used to meet when their love was still new and secret. It is called the Island of Butterflies. The inhabitants are not of the form that you see me under. They are little winged men, very pretty, very gallant, very amorous, and so volatile that they hardly love the same thing for even one day. Whilst the Golden Age reigned on the earth, Cupid, who at that time flattered himself that the hearts of all mankind would be ever fond and faithful, feared that, by the facility with which we flew about the world, we might teach mortals the agreeable art of changing in love, which this god called an error capable of utterly destroying the happiness of his empire. In order to interdict all communication between us and the rest of the universe, he came to our island, touched the ground with one of his arrows, and rising again upon a brilliant cloud which had borne him thither. If again, said he, to the inhabitants of the island, you wish to traverse the air like the gods, I have taken sure means of vengeance. You can no longer, by your dangerous society, trouble the happiness of my empire. After these words, he disappeared. The threats of Cupid did not, however, take from the butterflies the desire for change, nor even for flying, if it was only for the pleasure of occasionally quitting the earth. Some of them mounted into the air, and found that they had the same facility as they possessed before Cupid had forbidden them to do so. But as soon as they passed the limits of the island, they were changed into little insects, such as you now behold me, all of different colors, avenging Cupid having intended to mark by this variety how much they were given to inconstancy. Surprised at their metamorphosis, they returned to our island, and as soon as they touched the ground, they were restored to their original form. Since that fatal time, the vengeance of Cupid has always continued amongst us. When we quit the earth, nothing of our nature as man remains, except for our mind, 
and the liberty of speaking like them, but we have never made use of it out of our island. Not choosing to make this act of vengeance, celebrated by publishing it ourselves to the universe, or to alarm those who, like us, are inclined to inconstancy. We have, however, the pleasure of seeing in our travels through the world that fate has revenged us on Cupid without our assistance. For inconstancy reigns with equal power to his own in the whole extent of his empire. Some centuries after this change took place in the realm of the butterflies, the sun, that seemed to take pleasure in making it bring forth flowers, was so enchanted with his handiwork that he fell in love with a rose of extraordinary beauty. He was tenderly beloved by her, and she sacrificed to him all the care bestowed on her by the zephyrs. At the end of some time, the rose became of a different form to the rest. The sun immediately caused others to blow, resembling her, in order that she might be less remarked in this quantity of flowers, which then appeared a new kind of plant. It has since been called the rose of a hundred leaves. At length, from the sun and this rose sprung a demigod, whom the sun destined to reign forever in our island. Until then, we had had no sovereign, but the son of a god who had favoured so constantly our earth was received as our ruler with extreme joy. They called him the prince of the butterflies. It is this prince, beautiful princess, who can assist you in the air, and whom the adventure I am about to relate has rendered such a fast friend of the prince of leaves. In a country far removed from that of the butterflies, there reigns a fairy who dwells in a very dark cavern. They call her the Fairy of the Grotto. She is of an immense size. Her complexion is a mixture of blue, green, and yellow. Her face is almost as formidable as her power. And she is so dreaded by mortals that there is not one bold enough to approach the country which she inhabits. One day, the Prince of Butterflies, travelling for his pleasure in the neighbourhood of his empire, perceived the fairy, and surprised at this rencontre, he followed her for some time to see what would become of so fearful of a monster. She did not remark that she was observed, for the prince, although the offspring of the sun, had not been able to obtain from fate the liberty of travelling under any other form than that which we all took on leaving the kingdom, because he was born since the time when Cupid had made us feel his vengeance. However, he was not inconstant, like all his subjects, and Cupid by way of showing him a little favour on that account, had permitted him, when he changed his form, to be of one colour only, and that colour should be the one which signifies fidelity. Under this form, he followed the fairy as far as he pleased, and he saw her enter her dismal abode. Impelled by curiosity, he flew in after her. But what a sight awaited him at the bottom of this cavern! He there saw a young lady more beautiful and more brilliant than the day, reclining on a bed of turf, and who appeared 
in extreme grief. From time to time, she dried the tears which fell from her lovely eyes. Her distress and the languor of her appearance added to her charms. The prince of the butterflies remained so entranced by this spectacle that he forgot the form under which he appeared and only remembered that he was desperately in love and that he was burning to say so. He was roused from this sweet reverie by the awful voice of the fairy who spoke to the young lady with frightful severity. This filled his heart with sorrow and anger, as well as with despair, at not daring to express either one or the other. The fairy, who by a natural restlessness could not remain long in the same place, went out of the cavern. The prince then approached the young person with whom he was so charmed. He flew round her, and wishing to enjoy the only liberty which his form permitted, he alighted on her hair, which was the fairest in the world, and at length upon her cheek. He was dying to tell her how much he was touched with her beauty and her grief, but by what means could he convince her that he was son of the sun, without being able to appear before her in his own form? And how could he inform her of the vengeance of Cupid, and the inconstancy so natural to the inhabitants of the island, at the very time that he wished to persuade her that he would never cease to love her? He remained several days in the cavern, or in the forest with which it was surrounded. He could not resolve to quit this beauty that he so adored, and although he dared not speak to her, he saw her, and that was enough to make him prefer this hideous abode to the agreeable scenes where he had taken the pleasure of reigning and of being acknowledged the most beautiful prince in the world. During the time he remained with this young creature, he always saw the fairy treat her with incredible inhumanity and he learned from their conversation that this beautiful person was the princess of the Linnets whom the fairy, being a relative, had carried off at a tender age, in order more easily to usurp her kingdom, which was a little island situated near that of the butterflies. He had heard of the princess having been carried away, and that no one knew what had become of her. This country was called the Land of the Linnets, on account of the great quantity of those little birds that was found there. The prince of butterflies pitied sincerely this unfortunate princess, and in the hope of being able to deliver her, he determined at length to tear himself away from her. He flew to the island of day without resting for a moment. He there found the Prince of Leaves, with whom he was united in the most tender bond of friendship, and who was about to pass a part of the year in the island of Butterflies. He related his adventure to the prince, and after discussing every means by which it was possible to set the young princess at liberty, the Prince of Leaves resolved to go himself into the forest of the fairy to inform the princess of the Linnets of the violent love which the prince of the butterflies felt for her and the reason which would always prevent that unfortunate sovereign from appearing before her under his proper form, unless she consented to be transported 
to the island of butterflies. But the Prince of Leaves appealed to his friend, too formidable a rival to be entrusted with the commission, for he feared, with reason, that the princess might be more touched by the charms of so perfect a prince than by the recital of the love entertained for her by another prince whom she had never seen, nor even heard speak. He deplored the cruelty of his destiny, and sought some other mode of declaring his love to the princess, but without success. None but a demigod could approach the dwelling of the fairy without feeling immediately the direful effect of her fury. He embarked, therefore, with the Prince of Leaves, agitated by a jealous fear. It appeared to him that this prince could not preserve for a single moment on beholding the beautiful princess, the insensibility on which he had always piqued himself. Cupid, touched at the sad state to which he was reduced, wished at least to reassure him on this point, and at the same time triumph over the insensible heart of the Prince of Leaves. It was by you, beautiful princess, continued the butterfly that the god expected to gain this victory, and you alone are worthy of it. It was on the same day that the two princes embarked, that they saw from afar, upon this rock, an illumination so brilliant that the prince of leaves, impelled by his destiny more than by curiosity, ordered the winged fish which conducted the arbor of myrtle in which he traveled, to approach the spot from which the bright light emanated. You know the remainder of this adventure. The Prince of Leaves found you in the forest of Hyacinths and left at your feet the liberty which he had held so dear and which, till that moment, he had always preserved. Hurried away by the impatience of the Prince of Butterflies, who had suffered nothing but regret at the delay, tore himself with infinite pain from a spot where his heart and his wishes would have made him desire to remain forever. They continued their voyage, and the Prince of Butterflies was so delighted to see that the Prince of Leaves was so deeply in love, and so far from being likely to become his rival, that he did not doubt of its being a happy omen, and that he might count on a successful issue to his enterprise. They arrived in the forest of the fairy of the grotto. They entered her dreary abode, and Cupid, who had resolved to favor them, caused them to find the princess of the Lynettes alone and asleep. There was no time to be lost. The prince of leaves carried her off in the myrtle arbor, whilst the prince of the butterflies followed. The fairy returned at this moment, she uttered the most horrible shrieks at the sight of this abduction. She thought she could prevent it by her art, and revenge herself on those who had thus dared to rescue the princess of the Lynettes. But her enchantments were powerless over the Prince of Leaves, who soon was far away from the dismal shore. In the meanwhile, the princess awoke, and was agreeably surprised at finding herself where she was, and at the presence of the Prince of Leaves, 
but it was an agreeable surprise, which increased when that prince conversed with her and informed her of the effect of her beauty and that she would henceforth, being delivered from the tyranny of the fairy, reign in her own empire and in one also even finer than her own. The prince of the butterflies then spoke of his love with so much vivacity and tenderness that the princess felt excessive curiosity to see him in his true form, of which she confessed to have formed a very exalted idea from the time she heard his voice. They continued to float on, and after some days, arrived at the island of butterflies, when the prince hastened to land, in order to appear at length in his own person to the princess. The princess of Linnets, then sent to inform her subjects in her own island of her adventures. They flocked to see her, and it was in their presence that she accepted the heart and empire of the happy prince of the butterflies. The prince of leaves, however, left her immediately that he had safely conducted her to that island in order to return hither, beautiful princess, where his anxiety and his ardent love made him impatient to be. Ravissant listened with extreme attention to the butterfly, when she saw Prince Ariston enter her chamber with such fury in his countenance that she dreaded its effects. Fate threatens me, he cried on entering, and as it is with some great misfortune, it must no doubt be that of losing you. None other would affect my heart, or be worthy of being so predicted. See, madam, he continued, addressing Ravissant, the colour which the walls of this tower are assuming, it is a certain sign of approaching misfortune. As the misfortunes of Ariston were a happiness to Ravissant, she looked without distress at that which he pointed out to her notice, and perceived, indeed, that the blue stones were losing their original colour and beginning to turn green. She was delighted to see this, as she augured from it the certain approach of the Prince of Leaves. The joy which the unhappy Ariston remarked in her eyes redoubled his despair. What did he not then say to Ravissant? And rendered sincere by the excess of his grief, he told her that his love was so great as not to allow of his ceasing to adore her, although he was sure of being miserable all of his life. I cannot doubt it said he to the princess, for the fates foretold to me as to you that I should always be miserable if I were not always faithful to the first impressions love made on my heart, and by what means could I ever obey this cruel mandate? After one has seen you, however he may have loved before, he must forget everything, even the preservation of his own happiness in loving and seeking to please you." A young princess of the court of the king, my father, once appeared to me worthy of my regard. I thought fully that I should be sighing to return to her after remaining here for a short time. But the first sight of you subverted all my previous plans. My reason and my heart were equally inclined for the change, and I thought nothing impossible to the tender love with which you inspired me. I flattered myself even that it might overcome fate. But your austerity, which never relaxed, has taught me that I was deceived, and that there remains for me no other hope 
but that of dying speedily for your sake. The Prince Ariston finished speaking these words, which made Ravissant even think him worthy of some pity, when they saw in the air a throne of foliage, supported by an immense number of butterflies, one amongst them, which was entirely blue, and by whose color Ravissant recognized the son of the sun, flew to her and said, Come, my beautiful princess, today you shall resume your liberty and make the most amiable prince in the world happy. The butterflies placed the throne near Ravissant. She seated herself on it, and they bore her away. Ariston, distracted at the loss of the princess, in a paroxysm of despair, flung himself into the sea. The fairy immediately abandoned the rock, which this suicide had rendered so fatal and melancholy, and to mark her fury, she shivered both it and the tower into a thousand pieces by a clap of thunder, and the fragments were carried by the wind and waves to different sea coasts. It is of this species of stone that they now make rings, which they call turquoise. Those which are still called de la vieille la roche are made of the remains of the shattered rock, and the others are only stones which resemble them. The remembrance of the misfortune predicted to Prince Ariston by the change of color in the walls of the tower has descended to our time. They say still that these rings become green when any misfortune is about to happen to the wearers, and that these misfortunes are generally connected with love affairs. Whilst the fairy gave vent to her grief by the destruction of the island, the Prince of the Butterflies, satisfied at having rendered to the Prince of Leaves a similar service that he had received from him, conducted the beautiful Ravissant, flying before her, to a boat of rushes, ornamented with garlands of flowers, in which the Prince of Leaves awaited her with all the impatience which the violence of his love inspired. It is impossible to convey an idea of the pleasure he felt at the arrival of the princess. Never were joy and love so apparent as in the heart and the language of this prince. He sailed immediately to the island of day. The prince of the butterflies flew off to rejoin the amiable princess of Lynette's as speedily as possible. Ravissant sent two butterflies to the king, her father, to inform him of her good fortune. The good king thanked the fates and set out as soon as he could for the island of day, where the Prince of Leaves and Ravissant reigned with all imaginable felicity and were always happy because they never ceased to be fond and faithful. The lot of Ravissant with envy view, born to be blessed could she prove only true. How many hapless lovers had succeeded had constancy been all their idols needed. End of section 14. The Prince of Leaves. Recording by Carmen Fulmer, West Virginia.